please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. Space camp was always kind of my thing because I wanted to be an astronaut. One of the things that you learn about when you come to the Rocket Center is, yes, you learn a little bit about the astronauts, but you also learn about all of the other people that did all of the work to be able to put that astronaut into that capsule or into that shuttle and get them into space and back. If you are out there in the world thinking that the astronauts are the thing, they're amazing. They are engineers and scientists and pilots and everything in their own right, and they're phenomenal. But I think you owe it to yourself to come and see that there's a lot that goes into the support of those small few people, the hundreds of thousands of others that discovered the idea or invented the machine or solved the problem that allows those people to do their jobs. Ed Stewart graduated from West Virginia Wesleyan College with a Bachelor of Arts in Theatrical Direction and Design. Ed served the U.S. Space and Rocket Center as the Director of Exhibits and Curation for almost nine years before becoming the full-time curator in May of 2023. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this fascinating individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I only know that you're Ed yes. with the Mohawk. And ah, I don't think okay. that's your last they name. They give you the rest. No, my, my last name is not with the Mohawk. Uh, my last name is Stuart. Okay. My title is curator. Have you ever attended space camp? Yes, um, with, with an asterisk. Okay. Um, and the asterisk is I did not get to attend it when I was a kid. Okay. Um, the asterisk part is when I started here in January of 2001, part of being a space camp crew trainer was going through space camp so that you understood what the kids were going through. So that was my attending space camp. Sure. What was it like as a, to, to do it as an adult? Did you do it with other adults or were you with a group of kids? No, we did it with other adults because it was, it was part of our training process. So okay. the other members of our crew were the other staff that we were training with at the time. Okay. Um, and from me personally, my perspective, you couldn't have asked for a better way to spend the time because um, I've, I've always been a huge kind of space nerd and and just nerdy person in general sure uh, so it was like I get to do it and I get paid for it yes right yes please so, where where did you grow up a lot of time I split between um, Miami Florida and a town in northwest Alabama called Phil Campbell okay so I have mom's side of the family is South Florida dad's side of the family was up here sure and we Went back and forth. So. When, when did you start to become interested in space? Or, or was museum curation the first interest? Um, no, it was definitely space. I don't remember a time when I didn't want to be an astronaut as a kid. Um, so it was just kind of, I, I was born with it in my DNA as far as I know. At what point 
then did did things shift? Ah, because at some point you were like, you know, maybe I'd like to, you know, <laughs> dust. Yeah, <laughs> no, <I'm> just, no. <laughs> every, um, I do want to get into that in a minute though, because right. that is kind of what right. people think like curating is just like dusting the exhibits or whatever. And so I want to get into what what yeah. that actually means. Right. Uh, um, no, my so my pathway originally was I was good at math and science in school. And I was like, all right, sweet. I know what I need to do. I want to be an astronaut, so I need to go be a, a fighter pilot first and then a test pilot and so on and so forth. Right. And then I discovered that I had asthma. Uh-oh. Um, and that took all of those fighter pilot, test pilot, astronaut things right off the table. Right. So I actually went a completely different direction. Um, and I went down the arts pathway. I went into band. I did theater, um, all that stuff. And then only came back around to space exploration after I graduated from college, completely so what, by accident. What did, what did you major in then? Theater. Okay. Yeah. I have, I have a bachelor's in theater. I did uh, directing and design. So how? So uh, let's explore that for, for a minute. Yeah. How did you move from theater then back into space? Obviously, I'm sure the interest remained, but, but what was right. the, the impetus for the career shift? So when I graduated from school, I was living... Um, in Florence, Alabama, and realized that I'm going to starve uh, <laughs> because there's not exactly a, a professional theater scene in Florence. And, you know, if you want to be in professional theater, you've got to go to where the theater is. Right. And I was not big on the idea of living from contract to contract, which is how all of that works for the most part. Yep. And so I was looking for other things to do. A friend of mine who is kind of very much like me, very nerdy, um, very into science, um, came and worked as a space camp. At the time, we were called counselors. Now that, now we're crew trainers um, for a summer. And he came back in the fall and said, hey, I know you love all this stuff. You should really try this out. That was 99. Okay. And then I applied at the end of 2000 and started here in January of 2001. Okay. And my thought was, well, I'm gonna. this is going to be great. Um, I can live here on campus while I do this thing with the with the space camp programs, which is really exciting. Um, it, it satisfies all the nerd in me. Um, and there's a little bit of the theater in there, too, because sure. I'm, I'm doing a lot of presentation and a lot of talking to groups and, and, and stuff like that as well. Um, and space camp's a little bit like a LARP in some ways. And so yes. there's a lot of improv theater in, like, pretending you're in space. Right. There's, there's that, especially the missions. Like, the missions have scripts. Right. And they have all of these things that go into it. And it, and it is... Even in the real world of NASA, simulated missions are a just a highly detailed, very intensive version of LARPing because right. it's it's you're wearing the gear, you're in the environment, you're doing the things, yeah. and you know so it, it's a it, it's a good uh, analogy. But yeah, so I, I came for what I thought was going to be the summer of 2001, and I never left. <laughs> How yeah. did you make the shift from being a crew trainer into working in the actual artifacts section? Yeah. It, Again, another weird sort of convoluted story because um, I, I worked on the space camp side of things for, for quite some time. And we had, I guess it was around 2010, I was working with what we called corporate programs at the time. So it was a space camp-based professional development, team building, stuff like that. Right. And we had a changeover of CEOs at that point in time. Um, and... As is common with a lot of companies, a lot of the kind of higher level leadership. They all shift at once. They all shift at one time. Yeah. And the curator was part of that at that time. 
And one of the vice presidents here was like, hey, Ed, I know you know all this stuff. I know you're familiar with all of these things. Would you be interested in taking this position as sort of a pro tem? Sure. Until we hire a, uh, you know, a, a, a permanent curator. And it took me all of about 1.3 seconds to say yes. <laughs> and so it was purely a moment of opportunity that I was like, absolutely. And I expected it to be a couple months, three months. And it stretched out a little bit longer than that. And I was like, so I get to do all of this really cool stuff with all of these really real space things. Um, and it appeals to my like, I want things to be organized and I like things to be <laughs> and make sense and so on and so forth. Um, so I just started kind of consuming as much education uh, as I could about the museum side of things. Like I already right. had a good beat on the, the technical and the history and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But then when it comes to like documentation and care of the objects and that sort of stuff, right. I just started like sucking up as much of that as I could. And I kind of lobbied our leadership at the time to say, Hey, I'm already here. Right. I'm already doing the work and I'm learning more about it. I'd really love to be able to, to keep this position and, they agreed. And so I did. That's wonderful. Yeah. This kind of leads us into that, that thought, you know, everybody thinks that curating is just like deciding what gets shown and what doesn't and making mm -hmm. sure it stays clean. But there's a whole other side to curation that, that people right. don't realize there are huge artifact storage areas right. and spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Spreadsheets and muslin sheets <laughs> and muslin sheets. That is correct. Yes. We use a lot of muslin. There's a section of the artifact storage that we like to call the suit morgue because all you see is like toes sticking up under muslin covers and right. it can be a little creepy if you're not expecting it. So, um, so yeah. So share a yeah. little bit, if you could, to our listeners, like tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes side of what it is like and what yeah. you do as a curator. Yeah. One thing I'd say too is, you know, I think when a lot of people say curator, they first think of like in an art museum. Right. And when it's a curator in an art museum and a curator in a history museum, they do some similar things, but there's a lot of distinction uh, between them. So um, we do a lot of the same in terms of like, all right, we're going to do a new exhibition. What pieces belong in the exhibition? What stories are we trying to tell in that, that exhibition? Um, but then it, it shifts away from kind of what the art curators do and it becomes its own thing. Um, the curators will oftentimes not just choose the objects, but will do a lot of the research for what the content of the exhibition is going to be. We may not write everything, right. but we'll at least provide the bones of, all right, this is the story we're going to tell. Here's the factual information that we have, and, and here's the outline for the direction we want to move you know, uh, right. this exhibit through. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, another part of it in the way that, that we're structured, because it, it kind of varies a little bit by institution, you know, part of my responsibility here is making sure that everything is properly taken care of. Right. That's a that's what we typically refer to as conservation. Okay. Um, so not long ago, we had someone inside the Apollo 16 display case dusting and, and cleaning and checking on the, the spacecraft to make sure that everything's still the way it's supposed to be. Right. Um, and so that's all conservation work when we wash the airplanes or the rockets that are outside, all of that's part of the conservation responsibilities that come into the department and into my role. Sure. So. Is there a lot of provenance that's, that's tracked with, with yes. science objects? Absolutely. Um, I know that's a big thing in the art world, so I didn't know if that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's the same here too. In some ways we have it a little bit easier um, <laughs> because a lot of these big things that we have, 
come to us from government entities. Right. Um, so if it comes from NASA, you know it came from NASA. Right. <laughs> right exactly right. right. And and in the worst case scenario, something that comes from NASA will have a data plate on it somewhere. Okay. Um, or should have a data plate on it somewhere um, that tells you its serial number, when it was manufactured, and stuff like that. So that gives you kind of jumping off points that you can then research back okay. and figure out what things are. And are those things on the equipment when it flies? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that that is absolutely correct. I wasn't sure um, if that was something that, you know, they did right before they handed it off. No, 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 no. They, every Everything has to have a serial number and a manufacturer date and all the Everything from just discrete components of a spacecraft all the way up to a complete spacecraft itself. There's a stamp or a placard or something on it somewhere that tells you what it is, where it's from, etc. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, nuts and bolts, not necessarily so much. They'll have their, like, the you know, this meets this uh, spec stamped right. on it. But, you know, it it's, it's all very well tracked. And sometimes it comes to us without those because it's been around the world and back and... <laughs> It's been through many hands before it came to us. Right. Uh, but if we're getting it directly from NASA, which is how we get most of the really big stuff, we have that kind of wrapped up and, and sure. pinned up ahead of time. Um, now, when individuals donate things to us, then we we have to ask them questions and say, right. all right, and when when did you get it? Where did you get it? How did you get it? So on and so forth. And Because and, we really – it's important for us both ethically and legally to be able to establish sort of a, a paper trail – for anything that we have in the collection, whether we display it or not, that we know where it came from and how it was acquired and stuff. The last thing you want to do is have something in your collection that was a, a stolen item. Um, that's a lot of problems for a lot of people, right. uh, and we want to avoid that. So, knock on wood, we haven't <laughs> we haven't had anything like that happen. So, uh, but that's part of why we do that provenance research is to make sure that what we're getting is everything is above board that we have that we're going to display. What was the very first exhibit that you got to curate? The very first exhibition that we did after I took over as the curator for the Rocket Center was um, 100 Years of Unbrown, His American Journey. It was a 15,000 square foot exhibition that had everything in it from little tiny bits of, of V2s that had exploded up to an actual entire V2 uh, rocket and... Anything and everything in between that had to do with Werner von Braun, pretty much. Um, I mean, we there were literally hundreds of objects in the exhibition. Um, so that was that was the first exhibit that I curated. <laughs> it was massive. Were you part of the decision of choosing yes. that one? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so you definitely came. I mean, he's sort of a he's kind of a big name. Yeah, just a little, <laughs> especially in Huntsville. Just right? a little. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> I don't know. You could you could make the case for like you know the 50th anniversary, the Apollo sure, mission, sure. and stuff like that. So you know, it, but yes, it was a it was a massive undertaking for somebody who'd been in the job about a year and a half, right? Um, and and not had gone through the traditional pathways, you know, to get that job. So right. there was a there was a big learning curve as part of it. But also, what's nice about it is it it kind of prepared me for just about anything else sure. that might get thrown my way. So it was really. It was really interesting because, you know, we all knew that we wanted to do this exhibition about him in what would have been his 100th birthday if he were still alive. Um, and so everybody has the idea for the exhibit. We all agree on that. Right. But I was the one that knew where all the things were and, and which ones that, <laughs> you know, made sense to go in it and, and so on and so forth. So that was that was the very traditional, like, curator part of it. It's like, all right, we've got 16 different um, calendars that were his. 
and we want to pick out two of them and which ones are the right ones to pick out so that we can showcase something that makes sense that's that's going to resonate with the people that walk through the exhibition. So, so these were like day planners? Kind yeah. Of. Okay. Basically. Uh, so we, of course, we chose the one with the Apollo 11 liftoff. Right. Not necessarily the landing <laughs> because Von Braun was in charge of the rocket, not the guys that were right. walking on the moon, right? Um, so we did the Apollo 11 launch date. He did have a note in there about the day that they landed on the moon, but it was kind of like a little scribble side note <laughs> as opposed to the launch day, which was all highlighted and like big uh, emphasis and all that kind of stuff. So, that's, you know, that's it's awesome. It's knowing those things that that allows the curator to kind of really shape and, and make the exhibit engaging for the guest. Did you attend space camp when you were young? Join the Space Camp Alumni Association, a group for graduates of all Space Camp programs to connect and support Space Camp from around the world. Your mission doesn't end at graduation. With Space Camp chapters located across the country and virtual networking opportunities, join the team to support the next generation of Space Camp trainees. Visit SpaceCampAlumni.com for more information and to join your local chapter today. How do you even begin to decide what what part of the story do I tell with a topic as big as Von Brown? We kind of managed it primarily by understanding what we have in our collection. At the time, the center was kind of on a restricted sort of financial environment. So there was not going to be the opportunity to do things like go to Berlin and do research and right. and import you know, stuff from, from overseas to really kind of do a full fleshed out example. So the idea was we did a little bit of bio and then we talked about his time in Huntsville. Okay. Um, cause with the exception of a, just a couple of things, the vast majority of the material that we have in the collection already at the rocket center is from his time when he was brought to the U S we have a little bit of his time in, in El Paso and white sands, um, but most of what we have is Huntsville right. related. So, in the process, did you discover or learn anything surprising about him or his uh, his <laughs> journey while he was here? Yeah, I mean, um, I did not know at that point in time that he was a musician. Um, that he played, was, I think it was originally it was the cello um, when he was a kid, but that kind of then left into a lifelong love of music. We did have some work that he composed when he was like. Maybe, uh, which was just something that I was not expecting. But then, when you think back about it, well, music and mathematics Very have a close, lot of yeah. have a lot of in common. So um, that was definitely something that was new to me, and and just learning more about him and his family life here in Huntsville right. was was really interesting. He was a guy who, when his son had to do a little like a, those little downhill race cars, you know, he would reach out to his buddies at Marshall and go, "All right, I need to know the best lubricant." to put on a nail that's going to go through a wheel and be an axle for a little wooden race car. <laughs> he was applying his own science. Yes, scientists. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he, he was, he was kind of taking that engineering and science and even, even to the nth degree in his personal life. That's, um, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's really cool. You were talking a minute ago about you had a, a hall of suits where there are a bunch of toes sticking out yeah. from underneath <laughs> muslin storage sheets. You know, what, what kinds of things, uh, do museums keep behind closed doors that folks don't necessarily get to see very often? Right. Pretty much every museum has back storage. 
And, and the reason you have back storage is you want to be able to rotate out the stuff that's on display right? so that people come back, sure. um, you know, down the road. And so we, we have the same situation. Everything we have is related to, in our case, it's Huntsville um, and Huntsville's part in aerospace and defense. Like that's kind of our main focus, right? We keep everything sort of bounded around that. And so that means we have everything from like... Redstone rocket fuselages to little tiny, um, a little nitrogen regulator from the space shuttle that's probably, I don't know, maybe three inches by three inches. Small. Roughly, it's very small. Um, we have 50 some odd spacesuits in storage um, that aren't on display currently. Literally thousands and thousands of, of other three dimensional objects. Um, we also have documents as well. And so we have, I think it's something like 1,700 linear feet of photographs, notes, correspondence, technical documents, wow. you know, that sort of stuff. So, Do you have an, a, a personal favorite? I will give you the most bizarre thing that, okay. we, that, that I think is the most bizarre thing that we have. Wonder Van Brown was a big outdoorsman, hunter, all that sort of stuff. Apparently he went um, hunting one year with some of his friends up in, this was while he was living in Huntsville, and it was up in Norway, Denmark, that area. He shot at this, um, like, white deer and didn't quite get it the first time. Um, he, he injured it and because he shot it in the hindquarters instead of, instead of getting a clean shot on it. So his friends, instead of, you know, doing the typical head-mounting uh, taxidermy, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, they, they took the hindquarters with the tail and then they took the horns or the antlers off of it and stuck those on the tail and gave it to him as a gift. Uh, <laughs> and that's here. <laughs> and that, that we have that in storage. Yes. We did actually have it out on display briefly in the uh, uh, hundred years of a Brown exhibit. Uh, but that is by far, I think the weirdest thing that we have in our collection. It's also kind of a wonderful story though. Absolutely. It, it, it's one of those things that it, it's, it shows you that an engineer, whether they're Von Brown or whether they're somebody that you don't necessarily know from the history books, they have a real life outside of the paper and pencil and computation um, and stuff that they do. So for for sure, in terms of a favorite, I'm I'm a hardware nerd. Um, so I really like. Uh, we have uh, some components that hopefully will be going on display next year. No promises. <laughs> um, of the uh, one of the F1 engines from Apollo 13 that was uh, dredged up off the bottom of the ocean by Bezos back in the day. Got that in storage. We have one small piece that's in a traveling exhibition currently, and we're hoping to bring more of it out. But that's that's probably one of my favorite elements because you can kind of look at the parts and pieces and see, yeah, this definitely used to be an engine, and it definitely went through a lot. Right. Um, so that's one of my favorites. It's got a, it's got a lot of story behind it. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. But what do you have uh, going on in the museum today? Well, so we just wrapped up um, the 50 Years of Skylab celebrations. Okay. Um, so we'd been working on a lot of Skylab-related material. We just put out um, a spacesuit recently that was part of uh, that was made for Jack Lausma. Uh, so that was kind of one of the most recent things. We we're actually doing a little bit of kind of in-house reorganizing in terms of the archives. We're going to be relocating some material. Uh, which is kind of a big deal for us because it's a lot of like logistics and planning and everything because you you don't just throw things in the back of your car. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's a big thing that we're doing right now. But one of the things that I'm most excited about that's kind of near term is there's a lot of work going on in what, what we call Rocket Park 
if you were here in 2017, you know, we had these five um, redstone-based rockets that used to stand vertically in the park, and then we took them down. Right. Um, So we took them down, we got them all repainted, and they've been warehoused, and where they used to live in Rocket Park, there are currently excavators and people pouring concrete and doing all this (laughs) other stuff. Um, So right now the target is sometime in March those rockets will go back up. Um, and I'm really, really excited about that because I spent a lot of time working on making sure we get the details of their paint jobs and everything right and right. researching and learning more about them, um, going back to talking about data plates. Yeah. Um, when we took those rockets apart, we discovered some things about some of them that we were very excited about. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to kind of update the information that we present to the public with that on there. And, of course, they'll go back out there looking new, looking even more accurate than they were before. Right. Uh, lots of extra details in terms of like, we're going to label the ports on this, <laughs> this goes back to me being a hardware nerd. You know, you're going to see the locks fill and drain and the, you know, the, the propellant fill and drain and all that kind of stuff, which really appeals to me personally. Uh, but I think there's a lot of our audience. That's the kind of thing that they're looking at too. Yeah. So is it much more difficult to curate items that you, that you have to display outside like that? Yeah, so that that's the that's a conservation challenge for sure. Um, you know, we got to stay on top of examining their condition as much as we can, and with some of the vehicles, it can be a real challenge because it's hard to access places that you need to be able to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the provisions that we've been working a lot with with the engineers and the architects for the project to put these rockets back up is making sure that we have better ways to inspect them in the future. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's a, there's a, a cleaning regiment that we have to keep in an inspection regiment that we have to keep. And it, it is a bigger challenge. Cause if you know, the weather, w- the, weather <laughs> yeah. the sun, the squirrels, the, you name it are all outside too. Right. Um, and so in a perfect world, we bring them all inside, but they're big. I mean, we're talking about rockets. <laughs> so yeah. your, your options are either lay them all down and build a building around them or, you know, you'd be paying a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money to have a, a building that could accommodate these things vertically. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it it's it's something we just have to stay on top of. We we develop a um, a plan, so we have like a general maintenance plan for all of the outdoor objects, and then we look at each one individually and go, all right. So, if we're looking at the F fourteen Tomcat that's down at aviation challenge, for instance, we know that there's certain compartments that we have to open and make sure that there aren't birds nesting in there and <laughs> stuff like that. Or, you know, check these vent locations to make sure that the grills are in place to keep the birds out. Right. Um, so on and so forth. Cause it, there's almost always a way that something's going to get in yeah. that you, you look at as a human and go, there's no way you could get, <laughs> get but they find a way. Um, so we try and like seal them up as much as we can. Not, not sealed as in like airtight, but like to prevent, from getting in um, but you still want to go through and like open compartments to make sure they're not holding water or anything weirds going on stuff like that so let's talk a little bit about the future then what sort of sure. things do you have that you're working on that uh, folks might be able to look forward to possibly if everything you know right all of all timelines and budgets allow right so of course we, we talked about in the spring you know looking at the reopening of rocket park one of the big things, of course, we've got coming up soon is also hopefully Pathfinder mm-hmm. um, early in 2024. We'll be going back up on to uh, the, the ET. Um, and, of course, we'll be redoing exhibition around that area as well. Um, some things will, will stay very similar. Some things will change quite a bit. 
Um, but we're also looking in conjunction with that down the future at a revamped shuttle history exhibition. So that's kind of something we're in the, the very primitive stages of developing right. right now. Like just big concept ideas for what the shuttle story is going to be that we're going to tell here. Sure. I've got a couple of exhibits in the hopper uh, that are going to be pretty like small footprint things. Like a, I've got an idea for a where's my jetpack <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> Um, cause we, Huntsville has a history of, of jetpacks, um, whether it's the man maneuvering unit or it's these things that were developed at Redstone in the fifties. Um, you know, there's, there's some cool ideas there, um, that I'm kind of getting my arms around now and sort of wrapping up into what a little, like an 800 square foot exhibit might look like for right. something like that. So how many exhibits are you working on at any given time? I would say between updating older ones and trying to develop new ones or just kind of putting rough ideas together for new ones, eight to 10 maybe. Do you have, um, a, do you have a team that helps you? Yeah. I, I, I have a, a handful of people that report to me, but then we also work with like the education team. Um, we have a facilities and exhibit construction team that we work with as well. So yeah, we've got lots of people that end up you know touching the, uh, an exhibition as it goes from idea to opening to the public. The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for intuitive planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. So if you were offered the opportunity to go to space today, would you? Absolutely. <laughs> Do you want to think about that a nope, minute? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Absolutely. 100%. If you are if if you're interested in the museum world, Find a museum that you love and volunteer there. That That's the way to start. And and if you're 16, that's a great way for you to kind of get an idea of this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, if you're not 16 and you have a separate career, then it's a way that you can support the place that you love. People come to museum careers at lots of different points in their lives. So some people come to it very late. Um, I would definitely say there is an advantage to following the traditional path of getting some education about becoming a curator or a conservator or an archivist. Um, there's a lot of heavy lifting that you won't have to do if you go that route. But, you know, if you can come if you can come by it through opportunity and, and learn about it, then that's good too. Um, in terms of science and technology, I would definitely say if you're thinking about science and tech, there's always the glamour jobs that you see. In in our case, it's the astronauts. Right. But remember that it's not always just those people. There's always support behind that, whether it's software engineers or a tech company or whether it's, you know, uh, a machinist that's manufacturing a part that goes into uh, tooling that produces a product. You know, there's, there's always a deeper level to it, so don't think that you always have to only be that one thing that's the tip of the spear. There's a lot that goes in behind it. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for 